0: This could be for you. S-M-A-G-S. Exclamation point. Welcome back to another extraordinary episode of Steve Made a Game Show. I am your host, Steve, and today we are joined by Brian. Brian, thanks for joining.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: It's great to have you on. You are on a podcast. It's a podcast called Steve Made a Game Show, otherwise known as Smags. On television, we've been seeing game shows that are blurring the lines with reality shows. So you look at something like Ink Master or Fear Factor or TNT's The Hero hosted by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, where it's a competition, it seems to be reality, but there's prizes and, and a game element. Would you consider those game shows or not?
1: Oh, absolutely. Reality TV has taken over and everything's got to be a reality show. Why not game shows? I support it. Ink Master is a great show. I mean, that show just takes it to another level. I mean, these are real people that get permanent tattoos all for the sake of entertainment. I support that 100%.
0: We can only hope to leave such a permanent impression on the listeners today. Today, we're going to be going through three rounds, as we always do. Round one is going to be the category round. I've prepared a very Brian-specific set of categories. Off of that, we're going to go three questions each, 50, 150, and 250 points. After that, we'll roll into the persuasion round. Give Brian a prompt, and then off of that, he has to persuade us on his point of view. The more persuasive he is, the more points he's going to earn. And then after that, we're going to go into round three the lightning round. We're going to go 45 seconds, and he has to rattle off as many responses to the question that I give him. So, Brian, are you ready to rock?
1: Let's go. I came here to dominate or embarrass myself.
0: Great attitude.
1: <laughs> Hopefully, the former, likely the latter, <laughs> but I'm ready.
0: We are going to rock. We are going to Dwayne the Rock Johnson on these three categories. People found on cable television. Name that Kanye album. And the player of our generation.
1: I like the categories. I feel like my weakest category will be people on cable TV. But we'll start there. So hopefully we can finish strong.
0: Okay. Starting off at 50 on that one.
1: Yeah, we'll go low.
0: Perfect. So for 50 points, the host of the cable TV show Marriage Rescue, John Taffer, Rose in fame partially due to the success of his other TV show, Bar Rescue. Even before this rise in popularity, John Taffer had initial success and fame as the creator of what sports related direct TV specialty package?
1: Okay, so I do know this one. I believe this is the Sunday NFL ticket.
0: Points. NFL Sunday ticket was created by none other than John Taffer.
1: Just one of many great things that man has brought <laughs> to the entertainment industry. Second, only behind the butt bar. This is
0: the first bar I've ever done with a triple butt bar. <laughs> we are so thankful for all of his contributions on television and bar science sophistication alike.
1: And just literal bars, as in the metal poles. He has even brought that to his science.
0: That moves us on to 150 in this category. You ready to go there?
1: Yeah, let's, let's go.
0: On an episode of Storage Wars... A guest personality believed that he found a Nintendo NES 001 that was worth up to $13,000. Turns out he just found a broken original Nintendo console worth $10. What was this man's name?
1: Oh, this is a good question. I've seen so much Storage Wars, but it's been so long. And honestly, this is a probably sad ending. I think that man is now dead. I'm pretty sure he is dead. I want to say his name was something like Ricky or Ricardo. I think I'm going to go with Ricardo.
0: Unfortunately, it was not Ricardo. His name is Mark.
1: Oh, Mark? Oh, man.
0: I'm glad, though, you distinctly remember the episode, even if you didn't remember the guy's name, because it was such a, an outrageously bad prediction. <laughs> he also did predict that it was called a Nintendo DS, even though it was an NES that he mentioned 10 seconds earlier.
1: I do recall being very interested to see what it was priced at, how if the show would fabricate its value or just flat out just tell him it was junk.
0: <laughs> they were pretty blunt in their assessment um question number three for 250 cable tv it brings us to family matters though originally a network tv show it gained legions of new fans and viewers with its reruns that aired in syndication on cable tv steve urkel eventually became its main character but the show's heart was always the winslow family so by name i need you to give me the members of the winslow family that were on the main cast
1: This is a real gotcha question, because in the first season and like maybe the second season, there is another daughter (laughs) that just completely disappears without any rationale. So we're going to add her in there. So there's Carl Winslow. There's Laura Winslow. There's Eddie Winslow. There's Harriet Winslow is the wife. I believe it's Judy Winslow is the other daughter. And and I think the grandma was just called like granny. Grandma Winslow. (laughs) Those are all my guesses
0: you're almost all on the money the grandma does have a name she went by mother winslow also
1: oh mother winslow okay
0: so i i don't know that i can award you 250 unless can you name the other extended family members that lived with them
1: there's rachel and little richie
0: (laughs) there we go okay you know what you basically had it all there i think i'm gonna give you 245 for that one
1: that's fair enough i mean knowing judy that's a gotcha moment
0: (laughs) i set the trap and you just hopped right over it
1: yeah That was a pretty common occurrence for some of these sitcoms, just having a really young kid and then realizing we cannot really write anything around this kid other than like a one-off. So we're just going to act some like as soon as we actually get the story going,
0: especially when you have just a hurricane presence on your TV show known as Steve Urkel. There's not enough (laughs) space for Judy Winslow.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's hard to compete against that.
0: So not too bad in cable TV. Where do you want to go next?
1: Let's go with uh, we'll go with Kanye now.
0: Okay, we're going to name that Kanye album. So I'm going to give you a lyric, an excerpt from one of his songs, and then you have to tell me what album that comes off of.
1: Okay, I like this.
0: Want to go with 50 first? Uh yeah. Okay. Mayonnaise colored bens, I push miracle whips. What record was that on?
1: I d- Okay, so I don't think that's like an early line, so I'm going to go later. But it's a 50 question, so it can't be hard. Is this uh Cruel Summer or Cruel Winter?
0: Go with Cruel Winter.
1: I can't remember. I know they were No, it's Cruel Summer. Cruel Summer, and there's teases for Cruel Winter, so I'm going to go with Cruel Summer.
0: We were looking for the college dropout. Is it? It was one of Kanye's early ones, so the last track on that album is Last Call.
1: Oh, okay.
0: This is the line. He, He includes it in the rap for Last Call, and then the majority of the song is a spoken word over a beat, and he's talking about essentially Kanye West's origin story, how he gets discovered, and he's rapping over a beat, and this is the line that he repeats again as mayonnaise-colored bands a push Miracle Whips, and Jay-Z was so impressed.
1: Yeah, that is a very cool line.
0: Not such a great loss, though. It's just 50. Maybe this 151, you can redeem yourself here. Let's go. Two years Dwayne Wayne became Dwayne Wade, and hey, please don't start me. I'm like Narls Barkley meets Charles Barkley.
1: I'm going to say graduation on that one.
0: Graduation, 150. Nailed it.
1: Is that good life?
0: That is the glory.
1: Oh, the glory. Okay.
0: That was uh 150 right in your pocket right there.
1: You know what? I was feeling pretty confident in this category, but it is very difficult for me to pinpoint. Like if I don't know the song right away, it's hard to pick the album. But I think I got a shot.
0: Okay, for 250, the Leor Cone or Dior Om. That's Dior Om, not Dior Homie. The crib scarface couldn't be more Tony.
1: I think this is Dark Twisted Fantasy. That's correct
0: dark twisted fantasy my beautiful dark twisted fantasy in fact
1: <laughs> it's a beautiful album
0: yeah that was off what can you name the song
1: is that um devil was a devil in uh something dress or something is that the one with rick ross
0: yeah on all accounts devil in a new dress yep you're doing really well brian thank you we're going into the last category here
1: save the best for last i cannot disappoint my idol
0: <laughs> now the player of our generation We're going to set some parameters here. So a player that came into the league in the late 90s, played through the 20-teens, and it's a title that...
1: If this is Tim Duncan, I'm actually going to quit the podcast.
0: (laughs) By definition, it's sort of amorphous. One man's player of our generation could be a different person's second player of our generation. The number one (laughs) player of our generation is undefined. So we've got contenders here. And the first contender, it could be someone who played from 1998 through 2017, goes by the name of Paul Pierce. Not long after winning this championship, Paul Pierce was asked, Is Kobe Bryant really the best player in the world? To which Paul Pierce responded, I don't think Kobe is the best player. I'm the best player. So, this potential candidate for player of our generation, Paul Pierce, famous on the Celtics, won a championship. Can you name for me the other teams that he played on in his career?
1: Okay, so he played on the Celtics for like a very long time. If he played on somebody before the Celtics, I'm not going to get that. I know after the Celtics, he went to the Clippers. And I can't remember if he left on the Clippers. Honestly, I'm just going to say the Celtics and the Clippers, because I think that's it. Oh,
0: no. The Brooklyn Nets, and then a year at the Washington Wizards as well.
1: So when he was on the Nets, was that with um, Darren Williams? Yep. Okay. And he Joe Johnson. Was KG on that team, too?
0: Yeah, it was this blockbuster trade that the Nets sent a ton of draft picks to the Celtics. And then they got these guys that all just kind of fizzled out. They didn't do much. So then the Celtics have had all, that's how they got Jason Tatum.
1: Yeah, honestly, that was, a. and I remember it was a big deal because they just got like a new owner who really went high on the luxury tax and like completely crippled yeah. him for like a couple of years after.
0: He thought he was getting a $13,000 NES001. He ended up with just an old broken console.
1: His name was Ricardo.
0: <laughs> Paul Pierce, maybe the player of our generation, maybe not. Let's move on to the one fifty player of our generation candidate, Kobe Bryant. There we go. He's an 18-time All-Star, one-time MVP. He's noteworthy for having a great career while wearing two different numbers. And in fact, he scored 16,777 points, repping the number eight, and 16,866 points, repping the number 24. And what season did he begin wearing the number 24?
1: This is a tough question. Let me think. Let's go with 2006.
0: 2006 2007 nicely done
1: nice i'm surprised i got that one
0: for 250 player of our generation another candidate maybe the definitive candidate he's a man who won two mvps he's a 15-time all-star and also a five-time world champion tim duncan can you name of those five championships what years did he win his
1: championships it will be best for me to start from his most recent and work backwards. 2010, 2011, that's when the Heat versus the Mavs. So then 2011, 2012 was when they versus OKC. 2012, 2013, they beat the Spurs. So 2013, 2014, that was a Spurs win. Okay, so that I'm going to say 2013, 2014. And then there was one against the Pistons the year after they won. So that was, I believe, I think the Pistons won in 2004. So then that would be 2005. Then when LeBron went to the finals in Cleveland, I believe that he lost to the Spurs that year. He got like swept. And I'm trying for the life of me to remember. That would have been, I believe, the year before he went to the Heat. So I think that would have been 2009-2010 season. Third guess. And then... Yeah, this one will be guesses in the dark. Oh, you know what? No, I think I'm going to retract my third guess because 2009-2010, I think that's when Kobe won against the Celtics. So I'm taking that guess. And then then 2008-2009, he beat the Magic. Then 2007-2008, I think he lost. So I'm going to say 2006, the Spurs won. So did they go back-to-back that year? Oh, I'm going to go 2005-2006. The, the Heat one that I said that I already forgot. Then I'll go 2001 and then 2000.
0: Okay, so it's a little bit of a mess. You got some right. You missed a few. You got your Heat right. 13-14 yeah. season. That was the rematch. Yep. Pistons, 2005. That's right. Yeah. 2006, though, he was referenced in an earlier category. That was Dwayne Wade's first championship. The Heat one in 2006, oh. but then the Spurs won in 2007. Yep. And then... The two Tim Duncan championships actually surround the Lakers' three-peat. So before that, in 99, there was a shortened season with the strike. He won his first championship. So then they beat the Nets in 2003.
1: Oh, okay.
0: You got two out of five, though, and you were so close on that third one. So we'll give you 100 smag points.
1: Oh, I appreciate the condolences.
0: <laughs> it was a sympathy reward, but thank you so much for just walking our audience through the past 15 years of NBA championships.
1: The ramblings are crazy, man.
0: Save some of those ramblings for the persuasion round, which is where we're heading next. But first, let's hear a brief word for this advertisement.
1: The following skit is for comedic purposes only and does not reflect a sponsorship of the discussed product. The views and opinions expressed by this podcast are not endorsed by the following company. This is not a paid advertisement.
0: You're eating good in the neighborhood and then your order gets canceled. Where do you go? You go to somewhere that's reliable with its quality, with its warm-temperatured food. You're going to go to the DQ, the Dairy Queen Grill. They're going to serve chicken sandwiches, fried chicken sandwiches, burgers, famously hot dogs. You'll be served with not only a side of fries, but a side of toast. Nutritious carbs that are not going to necessarily be high in cholesterol, but they are going to be high in brain power. So You might even be a bit smarter afterwards. I recommend checking out the DQ Grill, or if your location doesn't have a DQ Grill, it might in fact have a brazier. At Brazier's, you're usually just going to find hot dogs, but I highly recommend checking out Frazier's favorite Brazier, the Brazier DQ Grill, the Brazier. All right, and we're back, and we are cruising into the persuasion round, round number two. So, Brian, this is your prompt. Rewind yourself back a good 20 years, and I know you were a gamer. There's a lot of us here that were. Some of the most popular games at that time found on the Nintendo 64 were very similar, but they did have differences. They were platformers, and I've got three in particular that achieved widespread success. Super Mario 64, Banjo-Kazooie, and Donkey Kong 64. Explain to us in the audience what was revolutionary about these games. Do they still hold up? Do they not hold up? What works? What doesn't? And then how did they chart a future path for games and their structure and design that you would find on a Nintendo console or even elsewhere?
1: Okay, so full disclosure... When I was a kid, of course, I got Nintendo 64. My favorite game of all time, probably still to this day, is Super Mario 64. I do not have a lot of time with work and stuff to find time to play it. But I usually, good every one or two years, I will bust it out and play it just a little bit, just because I love the game so much. So I think I will start talking about just Super Mario 64. So it's important when comparing all these games together to realize that Super Mario 64 came first, because when you compare them just as standalones, you know, Banjo-Kazooie and Donkey Kong 64 are a lot more fledged out. There's a lot more content. I mean, Super Mario 64 is, by all sense and purposes, pretty like disjointed. There's different levels, but they're a lot smaller. And the hub world is really, you know, it's a castle, which is nice, but it's pretty barren. You know, you can run around, but then as you jump into the levels, there's really no seamless continuity between levels. So that is kind of like a detriment. You know, Banjo Kazooie, the hub world's a lot more colorful. The levels kind of seamlessly intertwine with each other. And the hub world's not just like a vehicle to get you from one level to the other, there's also um, enemies that you have to worry about, there's secrets that you can unlock. It's a lot more dynamic. The reason why Mario 64, though, is one of the greatest and so impactful is because it really is the groundwork and the foundation for these games even being made. When the N64 came out, this is the console that came after the Super Nintendo. So this was like when Super Nintendo, Sega, this is like 16-bit, 32-bit. Most of these games are kind of flat, static, and your controller even is really just up, down, left, right. You know, you don't have this 360 analog movement. Now, you jump to the N64, that jump was pretty revolutionary at the time because games were not made like that. Games didn't look like that. Games didn't have you controlling a camera. Games didn't have you moving 360 degrees and like up and down, in and out. That was something that was a pretty foreign concept at the time. Because of that, people didn't know how to play those games. People didn't know what those games were going to look like. The genius of Super Mario 64 is it's really just a glorified tech demo. I mean, even when the game starts off, you're just outside and you just can just run around and do whatever you want. You can learn how to jump, you can learn what Mario does, all his moves, and then as you get more comfortable controlling the character, controlling the camera, then they put you into all these different levels. And then you really realize how fun it is to just run around as Mario, given stuff to do. So that's why I think it's such a great game, because they really are just showcasing the potential of what's to come. Banjo-Kazooie is a great follow-up to a game like that, because it really takes a lot of things that Mario did well and makes it a much more dynamic experience. In Mario, you go into each level and you get stars and there's 15 levels, and each level has six stars. So really, there's not like a lot of direction in the game. It's kind of just going to a level, get stuff, and then there's like three checkpoints in the game where you just kind of unlock new levels. Not only are there stars to collect, there's coins. There's stars tied to coins, but you don't really need to do them. You can beat the entire game without ever getting a coin star. The point of the coins to me, as I always saw, it's a way to get the player to explore the level. They hide coins in locations, and... If you just want to explore the level, it's just kind of like a goal that keeps going to like look at every nook and cranny and by finding the coins, then you can find stars too. If you like notice different areas or find new areas.
0: Because when you enter a level, you're not really given a great instruction on what you're doing. There's a title and maybe you can talk to one of the characters that it's just going to be text and it's, you know, like a sound effect when they're speaking. Yes. So it's really, if you're a young kid, you might not even be able to read what's going on.
1: Yeah. So a game should give you a, a goal. Like a game should give you something to strive for. And coins were the very cheapest, easiest way to do something. And even something that you might not notice, but I think was intended in the design is, you know, based on how many coins you've collected, like really how much of the level you've explored. So if you think you've explored a lot of the level, but you only have like 40 coins, and well, there's a chance there's a huge part of the level that you haven't even explored or experienced. and some of the levels, like there's a level, Hazy Maze Cave, where there's like elevators, there's secret caverns and stuff. You know, that's important for a player to know, like, oh, there might be like an avenue that I haven't really explored. It's also a very free game in the sense where you have the luxury to pick what stars you want. If you don't like a level, you don't got to collect all the coins. There's really solid benchmarks and check marks. You know your goal really in the end is to collect stars. And even on each level of the hub, they tell you how many stars you need to progress. So a thing I want to stress during this talk is collectibles are very important in these types of games. They give a purpose to what you're doing. And Mario had two collectibles. They had coins and they had stars. There's a lot more coins, but it's a lot less important to get them. And the stars is standard throughout the whole level. And, but you don't need to get every star. So then you look at Banjo-Kazooie. They evolve on the formula of the levels by making the levels bigger, making more stars as Jigsaws and Banjo. And the way you get them is more creative. Of course, all these games have the same simple like, oh, collect the red coins, or collect the Jinzos. (laughs) They all have their own little repeated stars throughout the adventure. So Banjo-Kazooie did a good job in increasing on that. But then they also made the Humble World War seamlessly, and they created a progression into like unlocking levels to where Mario, you go through doors, and it's kind of easy to unlock the doors, but it's exciting to go into a new level. And I think these platformers realized it, and they made it a lot more of a spectacle for uh, Banjo-Kazooie. I mean, you have to put in your jigsaws that you get. You have to like fill in a picture of what the next level is If you don't have enough of the jigsaws, you can still look and kind of guess what it's going to be. You can get, like, excited before you even go there. And then there's a satisfaction, especially as a kid.
0: Right. It was almost taunting you that, you know, you're not this good yet. So go get better at the game. (laughs) Spend the time. Collect the things.
1: I guess I didn't take it so aggressively as a kid. It's okay. Everybody has their own motivational factor. But there's also skills in Banjo. So in Mario, everything you do in the game, besides the hats, but the hats... You could really go through the whole game without getting any of the hats. Everything you do in the game, you have from right when you turn on the console. It's pick up and play. All of Mario's moves, all of his abilities, you have them. Where it's not like that in Banjo-Kazooie, you have to like unlock certain abilities that unlock possibilities in the current level and future levels. That's also like a progression factor that was added to the game, which, in my opinion, adds depth to a game. They also had like transformations. There's a lot of cool stuff they added in there that as a player, it was like exciting. It made you excited to go to new worlds, not only because it was fun to explore the worlds, but what's this new ability I'm gonna get? Or, oh, am I gonna be able to transform into a creature? What's that gonna be like? And then I'll I'll go back to collectibles. There are significantly more collectibles in Banjo-Kazooie than Mario 64. Instead of the stars, you have the Jigsaws. Now there's less levels in Banjo-Kazooie, but they're a lot bigger. But there's also more stuff to collect in them. So instead of six stars, you got 10 jigsaws. And really there's only one jigsaw that is repeated throughout all the levels and that's collecting the Jinzos. So really you're getting nine varied experiences in the level, which is pretty sweet, that's more than Mario. And then instead of the coins, there's the notes and the notes have more purpose. The coins were just to get a star that you really don't even need to do anything unless you really want to get all the stars, but in Banjo they're tied to opening doors to get to new levels so not only do you need jigsaws to like unlock new levels you need notes to unlock doors to get to the levels so this is kind of one of the downfalls for donkey Kong 64 i'll get into that later but they're tying more value to these collectibles and then there's other collectibles like honeycombs which increase your health there's like the feathers and the eggs which they're everywhere and it's not really like
0: you got your mumbo tokens too
1: The mumbo tokens, yeah, yeah, there's more to collect, but you really are not penalized by not collecting them except the jigsaws and the notes. Like, you need to collect notes and you need to collect jigsaws. Then we go to Donkey Kong 64, that the world is bigger. There's literally multiple islands in the game. Like, one is Donkey's Island, one is like a big boat of a crocodile, King K. Rule. It was considered very revolutionary because of its scope. It was so grand. And honestly, I'm not sure if this is correct, but I think it has the most collectibles of any game in, like, history. I think there are more collectibles in Donkey Kong 64 than there are in literally any game that has ever been made. And that's not a good thing. This game was made in, like, the 90s or the early 2000s. If this is a good thing, another game would have tried to beat that. But it hasn't. In Mario, there's 100 coins. You don't really need to collect any. Banjo-Kazooie, there's 100 notes in each level you need to focus on collecting them. You don't need to collect them all, but you need to collect a certain to get progress. In uh, Donkey Kong 64, there are 500 collectible, they're bananas in this game. There's 500 for every level. My God! And if that wasn't enough, you can only collect the bananas of the Kong you're playing at. So Donkey Kong's bananas are yellow. Only Donkey Kong can collect those bananas. If you're playing as like another monkey, you cannot collect them. You can explore the area and find all these new bananas. Well, you better go back and get the right monkey or else none of it's going to matter. They're tied a lot to progression more than any of the other games. You need them to fight the boss to beat the level. To beat the level, you just need a certain amount of bananas. It doesn't matter what bananas you get. Like It doesn't matter like if they all come from Diddy or they all come from Donkey Kong, whatever. But the way the game really screws the player is you get a token if you collect enough bananas in a level. And as a player, you have no idea what these banana tokens are for. You're like, oh, okay, banana tokens. I guess that's nice. Later in the game, to get to the final level, you need to get two coins. And to get these two coins, you need to play two obscure minigames. The only way you get access to playing these minigames is if you have enough banana tokens... So I really hope when you get to that point in the game, you made it like an absolute priority to have enough banana tokens. Because if you're a player and did not know about this and just got the bare minimum bananas because you were excited about exploring the levels, the game really gave you a huge punch to the face (laughs) if they told you, oh, you don't have enough banana tokens. You have to go back to every world you've been through and make sure that you collected enough to get the banana tokens for each of these people. So already right there, a system that they don't tell you about, and then they punish you if you just get there. I mean, as a kid, I never even got that far. I had to like wait until I get older to even get to that point. Because the game is not easy. But I mean, what kid's going to be like, oh. <laughs> I mean, the kid's just going to stop playing. Let's be real. Like, who's going to want to just... That's when the game becomes like work and a chore. You already explored the level. You did what you wanted to get into the level. You, you got out. If you want to go back and figure all that stuff out on your own, that's fun to do on your own time. But to have the game force you to do it is just bad design.
0: And on top of that, those aren't the only collectibles, just the bananas, which is already, in the way it's designed, is frustrating, is excessive. No, you've also got instruments. You've got weapons. (laughs) You've got blueprints. Tell us about these.
1: So, Mario, we got the coins and the stars, Banjo, the notes, and the jigsaws. And then we just have just kind of random stuff like your feathers and eggs. Donkey Kong takes to the next level. They decided to add so much random crap for you to collect It's overwhelming. I mean, it is literally overwhelming. So there's the bananas, which are like the notes, and there's 500 of them a level, and they're character specific. And each character has five golden bananas to collect in a level, right? And the the golden bananas are like stars. So Mario, six stars a level. Banjo-Kazooie, 10 jigsaws a level. Donkey Kong 64, 25 a level. there are 200 golden bananas in the game or there's 201 i'll get into that later if i have time but there are 200 of these things that you have to collect and it's like okay why am i doing this playing this game to completion can cause an existential crisis (laughs) in in a player okay there's also crystals for doing certain abilities there's also blueprints so there's enemies that drop blueprints and. All you're told is that, oh, you get a golden banana and you're making a weapon, but there's really not much to it. But they're character-specific. So if you find a blueprint with another character, you better go back and get the other one to get it or it doesn't count. There's also, yeah, there's instruments. You got to collect those. There's there's a camera. For some reason in the game, you have to take pictures of these like fairies. And of course, the pictures, you had to get filmed for the cameras because there's that. And then to upgrade your characters, you need coins. So you have to pick up coins to buy stuff. But it's not just like, a universal currency. Each character has their own character-specific coins. You see where I'm going with this? There's just way too much stuff to collect, and it becomes a chore. It becomes a hassle. But I just want to point into, there's a lot of quantity in the game, but there's not as much quality. There are 25 golden bananas per level. And let me tell you, unlike Banjo-Kazooie, they're not unique. They recycle a lot of ways to get them. One of the most common ways they do it is they have these mini-games, and there's like 10 mini-games let me tell you, you will play each minigame like 10 times if you're trying to get all of them. And the mini games are not fun, and some of them are frustratingly difficult. They're just bad. Beaver Bother, shout out about how bad that game is. Also the Fly Swatter game. So I'd like to point out Donkey Kong 64 really punishes the player. And you know, the game is not a like, I'd say it's a bad game because it's very poorly optimized, but you know, it's fun to play as the monkeys. The levels are good. The bosses the ones they don't recycle are (laughs) interesting like the game is a very creative game but they really took to heart the collecting of the games before it and a little less on what made those games like great and what is the purpose of all these collectibles also for the blueprints if you don't collect the blueprints then the final level is significantly harder another way to punish the player like you might not know you need to get all of them there's like 40 you're timed at the very last level you have like so many minutes to beat all these mini games if you do not get all the blueprints they like cut your time in half or something so <laughs> if you can't do it in that amount of time you got to go back and get all the blueprints it's just it's a hassle i guess i like to summarize this all with mario 64 is the best because it laid the foundation for all the games that came before it it's definitely the easiest pick up to play even to today, there's an active modding community where players have made their own levels, really gone just crazy with it. Banjo Kazooie, I would say, is not my favorite of the games, but probably the most interactive and complete experience. They really took the framework and the scaffolding of Mario 64 and built around it to make like a beautiful thing. Donkey Kong 64 is all sizzle no steak. You know, they they has most of anything, but you don't want it. You don't want everything they had to give you and it really hurts the game. That is the end of my persuasion round.
0: It was thorough in ways that I don't think anyone has used the application of that word before. I think you did a great job of outlining what makes each game unique, uh, strengths, and then for some weaknesses. And then it all kind of comes back to the design. Everything in life is kind of designed. Mario 64, simple but very elegant, and so it still works. Banjo-Kazooie improved upon it. Donkey Kong 64, I think you made a good point that no one has tried to emulate it or replicate it once again. So it was sort of a failure, but it also is a, a good example of what not to do when you're determining an appropriate level of collection for a game. So in terms of collection, you did yourself a lot of favors. You just collected 740 smag coins.
1: Very nice.
0: That's a character-specific smag coin. You're going to have to go around and collect all other character-specific smag coins, get the film, take a picture of it, (laughs) and then I'm going to give you further instructions. But for everyone else, take a beat and listen to these words.
1: The following skit is for comedic purposes only and does not reflect a sponsorship of the discussed product. The views and opinions expressed by this podcast are not endorsed by the following company. This is not a paid advertisement. So you just brought your family to a beautiful Brazier setting. You had a a hot dog, some toast, some chicken nuggets. You've enjoyed wonderful pleasantries and you're feeling like the evening is not complete. There's something missing, there's a hole. How do you fill that hole? You've, You've been grilling all day, you need to cool down. You need to just take it slow, you need to chill out. If only there was a place where you could grill and chill. Well, guess what? There is today and there has been for a while. Of course I'm talking about Dairy Queen. That's right, that same place where you got all that grilling, family time, that just hot, heat, good umami flavors and toast. Now you can just let it all gel out with a nice chill. With the award-winning blizzards, you can get twist cones, get sundays. I mean, the possibilities are endless. The only thing that's important to remember is after you grill, take some time to chill at Dairy Queen.
0: And we're back and we're ready to wrap up the show today with the lightning round. So, Brian, you have a bit of a reputation that precedes you as a Pokemaniac. Is it not true that you brought Pokemon the first movie to watch on a cross-country high school field trip?
1: Maybe not my proudest moment to recoup at the age of 27, but I did do that.
0: I understand your shame. You really should have grabbed Pokemon the third movie instead of Pokemon the first movie.
1: At least we can agree the second movie would have been a happy medium.
0: Absolutely. But on that topic, I've got a Pokemon-themed lightning round for you. So it's going to be 45 seconds. I'm going to give you the prompt. And as soon as I finish, time will begin. You will not get penalized for any incorrect answers, so just give me as many guesses as you can.
1: Okay, fair enough.
0: So your prompt is, name for me by name as many cities featured in the whole wide variety of Pokemon games as you can. Okay. Begin.
1: Pewter, Viridian, Cerulean, Vermilion, uh, Saffron, Celadon, uh, Cinnabar Island, uh, Sinnoh, I think? Uh, uh, Pallet Town, um, uh, Gold Town, Mahogany, uh, Birch, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of trees. Uh, and I think, I'm trying to think of, in a wall here, but there might be... Those are probably all I'm going to get, but I don't know. How much time do I have left? 10 seconds. 10 seconds. Okay. Victory Road, if that counts.
0: Um. So, Brian, there was no missing no for your score. You correctly scored 10 cities from Pokemon. So you, uh, you've got some colors down pretty tight. Trees, you are able to get a couple of those, too.
1: Yeah, I was trying to think of, I played the first one, the second one, and like the third one a lot. But I could not remember any of the towns from the third one. And I'm pretty sure Sinnoh is the region, but not a town.
0: (laughs) Fourth region, looking at my fact sheet here.
1: Oh, the fourth one? Okay. Past the first gen, it was a stumper to think of some of those.
0: Either way, I think you still validated your status as a Pokémaniac. You should be proud of yourself.
1: In the the saddest way I am. (laughs)
0: With that, let's kick it off the leaderboard and see where you end up.
1: In fourth, Brian, 1785. First, Matt, 1885.
0: Second, Scott, 1870. Third, Alex,
1: 1831. S-M-A-G-S. Okay, my name is Brian, and I got smagged.